Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. What book of the Bible are we in? Acts. Acts. A lot of action in today's passage. Let's bow and ask God to help us understand it. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for all you are. We give thanks that you understand who we are and what we're like and how much help we need to just get in tune with you. Father, thank you for giving us the written word of God. That we can open it up and read it, underline it, think about it, reflect upon it. Father, thank you for preserving it. Not one word in this book is less than 2,000 years old. And yet it's been preserved carefully, rigorously, until what we hold in our hands, we say most assuredly, is exactly what God has delivered to mankind, his truth the story of his workings in this world. So, Father, now open up our minds and our hearts by your Holy Spirit to to just get more than, than we might think is there. Amaze us with the power of the story that we share this morning, for we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, in today's lesson that's in the book of Acts, We're going to do much more than just merely turn a page in Luke's account of the early church. In today's lesson, we're going to make a gigantic psychological, philosophical, sociological, and even theological leap into what was the unknown and the unimagined. In today's lesson, we see the church of Jesus Christ becoming truly the church of Jesus Christ. No longer will it be viewed as simply an extension or a modification or a variation of the Jewish faith. Today's lesson examines the beginnings of a true Christian enterprise. Something that sent shockwaves through the entire Jewish community. Something that demonstrated the ultimate reason Jesus Christ came to this earth. In today's lesson, we will see the mighty hand of our breathtakingly strategic Abba Father at work. We will also catch a glimpse of his brilliantly tactical nature. Are you ready? Well, let's do it. First of all, as we approach this most significant passage of Scripture, let me remind us of these two key strategy-revealing Scriptures that we've previously come across. Both of them have come from the mouth of Jesus himself. In our Bibles, many of our Bibles, they would be written in red ink. And so here's the first. The first strategy-revealing 
scripture, a scripture that lets us in on what it is that God's doing in the world, his strategy to bring about his will, his plan. Here's the first. It was spoken during the final week of Jesus' earthly life. In fact, Jesus spoke these words on Tuesday of that final week. These words were spoken to just four people, four of Jesus' core disciples, Peter, John, James, and Andrew. And these four had come to him and asked him a question about when the end of all things will come. He had just come into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, pretty much announcing him to be the king of the Jews, and they were anticipating the wrapping up of uh, all the evildoers in the world, and him being the king over the nation of God in this world. And, and so they asked him, when will be the end of all these things and the beginning of, of all the good stuff? And in Mark chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus says this, explaining to them before all of that good stuff they were anticipating would happen, he said this, this gospel must be preached to all nations. This gospel, what we're gathering together, the truth of God, the disciples were only vaguely aware of what it all contained, but he's saying this gospel, before the end of all things come, this gospel must be preached to all nations. Now, sometimes, I know, we've talked about this before, you can read a verse in the Bible and you just read it. Zip, right through it. You don't even look at the individual little words. And sometimes the littlest word in the sentence communicates the biggest thought. This statement of Jesus is like that. Notice that Jesus didn't say, this gospel must be preached in all nations. He said, this gospel must be preached to all nations. You see... The gospel could be preached in that day, first century day. The gospel could be preached in all nations by simply preaching to the Jews. For the Jewish people were scattered everywhere through the Roman world. All of the known nations of the day, you could find Jews in there. And so if you went and just preached the gospel to the Jews, you could in fact preach the gospel in all nations. But by saying to rather than in, Jesus was making clear that the gospel was to be preached. It was to be proclaimed to all the people filling up those nations. Those four disciples may or may not have caught on to the difference. They might have let those little words just slide by them just the way that most of us would. But the truth is God's strategy expressed and revealed in that statement of Jesus, God's strategy is to reach all people with this good news. Here now is the second strategy revealing scripture. It was spoken to Ananias. You know, after the apostle Paul had been going down the Damascus road to throw believers in jail, he was overwhelmed by a bright light from heaven, knocked right to the ground, and it was the Lord Jesus himself who addressed him and said, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is the resurrected, glorified, exalted Jesus himself. 
And as Paul is led, having been blinded by that light, into the city of Damascus, the Lord Jesus then appears to a disciple there, a believer named Ananias, and he tells Ananias to go and lay hands on this man, Saul, who was responsible for murdering Christians, Paul, who was responsible for throwing them into prison and trying to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, lay hands on him. Ananias. Now, when you walk into the room, the idea is he won't be able to see you at all. He's blind. So sneak in, sneak out, do whatever I tell you to do. But Ananias is thinking he wouldn't even know I'm there or who I am. Jesus says, Ananias, I want you to go find him on Straight Street at the house that I tell you. You lay hands on him. Pray for him so he can receive his sight. Well, there goes the anonymous thing. And Ananias argued with the Lord a little bit. Do you realize, I've heard about this. Lord, maybe you haven't been paying attention. This, This is a dangerous man. Lord, this man has done this and this and this. And Jesus gets a little miffed with Ananias, and he says, go. And then he says this, Acts 9, 15. This man, Saul, this man is my chosen vessel or instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. Now, that's revealing a strategy of God. How is this gospel going to be primarily preached to all nations? Well, a chief instrument in that preaching is this man, Saul, a second part of the strategy of God that's about to be worked out in real time. You see, all those nations were primarily filled with Gentiles, non-Jewish people. People of many beliefs and practices. People that Jews would generally find despicable and condemnable and thus most unacceptable. People like you and me in our current state, in our natural, excuse me, our natural state. Hopefully that's not our current state. How many of you are not like that anymore? Okay, I just want to be sure if I should shift this into an evangelistic message or, or just continue to teach the church. Okay, Paul, Saul, name he was known at that time. He is my chief instrument, my chosen one. It's a strategy of God to get the job done. So, having been reminded now of what the great strategist of the church, Jesus himself, had in mind... Let's see, as we look through today's passage, how he began to go about fulfilling his plan. The story, of course, will take up the entire rest of the book of Acts, as well as all all the rest of human history. But today's key scripture records a critical breakthrough moment. So here we go. Today's key scripture, let's just... Look at it together. I'll read it for you as it scrolls past you. As you look at your own Bible, you might want to underline or highlight things that just seem especially important. Acts chapter 11, beginning with verse 19. These are the, this is the passage we skipped over last week. 
to complete the Peter story. I told you we'd get back to it because this is starting a brand new story. And here it is. Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. That happened way back in Acts chapter 7. They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only, notice that, among Jews. They were Jews. They spread the word about Jesus only among Jews. It's our thing. He's our Messiah. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. I'll just make a comment here. From here on, previously to this, we got the idea the whole world is divided in a Jew's mind into Jews and, and uh, Gentiles. Thank you very much. Jews and Gentiles. We're not going to hear the word Gentile very much anymore in the book of Acts. Now it's Jews and Greeks. The people who were in the Roman Empire, the people who spoke the Greek language, Jews and Greeks. Paul refers to the Greeks lots of times in his writings. Not so much to, you know, the non-Jew word, just Gentile. So here, they began to speak to Greeks. Luke, who's writing to us, uses that term. Telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. It's like it accelerated. You know, Barnabas really was a, a blessed one and a fruitful one. And a great number of people, they, they continued to turn to the Lord in that city. Then, final verse we'll look at, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, three cities are mentioned in that account. And... Uh, for people on the East Coast, if you say, well, we live in Apple Valley. So where's that? California is a huge, long state from bottom to top, right? Is it anywhere near San Francisco? Uh, no, not, not physically, not morally, not... Uh, <laughs> In many ways, it's not anywhere near. They say, well, how, how big is Cal? If you were going to drive up to San Francisco just for the day to drive down that curvy little road, which now you can't drive down anymore, Lombardi Street. I drove down it, Linda and I, once in a four-speed Volkswagen. <laughs> Nothing like getting to the top of that where it says stop. <laughs> and there you are. Wait, waiting to go and wondering if when you leave the clutch out, can you hit the gas fast enough that you won't slot, you know. Now you don't have to worry. I understand you can't drive up it anyway. You can look at it. But people would say, so uh, how close to, would say San Francisco is like in a different country. And if you ask anybody in Southern California, they make sure they let you know that's Northern California. <laughs> and if you ask anybody in Northern California, certain things, like L.A., this, oh, well, that's in Southern California. 
We've been two states for a long, long time. Well, look at this map Linda put together. Okay, there's our north to south. The first town we want to highlight is Antioch. There it is, way up there. The second town we want to highlight is Jerusalem, and it's way down there. That happens to be 350 miles. And people generally had to walk or take a little burrow or something. They could take a ship out around, but 350 miles. You can see the little trails that go up and down there. It's not even perfectly straight. And then the third town we talked about was Tarsus, and that's up there. So you got an idea that the church was born in Jerusalem. Jesus died outside Jerusalem. Uh, Pentecost was in Jerusalem. When Stephen, who was killed in Jerusalem, the believers fled and some of them wound up all the way up north and some of them courageously, who really weren't just pure Hebrew Hebrews, but they were Greek-speaking people, they begin to share their faith in Antioch with Greek-speaking people. Saul, when he got saved... And Jesus said, he will be my chosen instrument. A little while later, he went down to Jerusalem and he caused so much tension with his correct understanding of what God is doing through Jesus Christ and how something brand new is being formed. It's not just a, a, an addition to the Jewish faith. He created so much tension there that those who did believe in Jesus in Jerusalem to save conflict, they just shipped him off up to Tarsus. That's where he grew up. Said, Saul, we're glad you're saved. Saul, we're glad that you're not putting any of us in jail anymore or even trying to track us down. But you know, you're still making life pretty tough for us. So how about we handle it here God must have some plans for you to do something else. And they just put him on a ship, sent him back up to Tarsus. And as far as we know, a number of years went by. So these are the, these are the three cities that, that make up our story. And we want to start then, as we see, see the strategic desires of the Lord Jesus himself being worked out, I want to draw your attention, in fact, to a strategic city, the city mentioned here, the city of Antioch. We said it's 350 miles north of Jerusalem. It is not part of the Jewish nation. No tribes of Israel were settled down in Antioch. It, however, was the third largest city in the world. Only Rome in Italy, only Alexandria in Egypt was bigger than Antioch. So this is not sending the word to the town of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. When they say, can anything come out of Nazareth? Everything of value could come out of Antioch. Antioch was a a world-class city. What a place to start a worldwide task. And though, though Antioch is the third largest city in the world, was within the Roman Empire, and was, in a sense, under Roman oversight, Antioch was permitted by Rome to function independently and to have its own local government. 
This is a huge city. I mean, think in terms of, of our country, Chicago or New York City. The key point we're making today, it was a non-Jewish city. None of its history was connected to or determined by God's dealings with Abraham and his descendants. Of course, there were Jews living there, and some synagogues could be found there, but a little bit of everything else could be found there too. Pagan temples, pagan practices, and pagan cravings for hope in the midst of the brokenness of life was found there also. A strategic city. And thus to them, Jesus chose to deliver a strategic message. Something these people had never heard before. Even going to their pagan temples, even following their pagan practices, they had never heard anything like the good news that came under the name Jesus Christ. It says in verse 20, they, these disciples who, who had the nerve to go to Antioch and to speak to the Greek believing or speaking people, they begin to tell them the good news about Jesus Christ. And verse 21 says, a great number, a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But have you ever been with a group of people that are pretty distraught? That are hearing some good news for the first time? Something that can change their lives? something that can resolve the issues they're dealing with, something that can bring peace to their heart, no matter what's going on around them in the world. These were lost men and women. These were broken people. These were people that the world, the flesh, and the devil had been defeating for centuries. And suddenly into this great, great city, filled with, with needy people, some people brought good news about Jesus Christ. Brought hope. The hope that so many of them were seeking, that all human beings seek, was brought in the gospel, the good news that the followers of Jesus proclaimed. Now, I want you to know, it's important for us to see in the strategic working of God, these men did not bring a uniquely Jewish message. They did not speak primarily of a Messiah who had come in fulfillment of ancient promises given to Abraham and to the prophets. They spoke of a Lord and a Savior who could free them from the bondage to sin and hopelessness that all those without him experience. They began with these people's lostness. And they didn't start by saying, I know you've all heard about Abraham. I know you've all heard about Moses. I know you've heard all about these prophets of old and what they said. And we're here to tell you that one has come fulfilling all of those things. These people didn't know anything about that other stuff. 
These people just knew they were lost. They were hopeless. Their life had little meaning. They tried to put their faith in the pagan religions. They tried to do the things that they should do. They tried to keep themselves in favor with the priests of the place by doing what they're doing. But you know, as well as I know, there is nothing that satisfies the human heart like faith in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that satisfies us like being born again through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so you can be guaranteed that these were people in desperate shape. Their hearts were empty. Their souls were not healed of the things that just damage every human being. And these men who came there recognizing who their audience was, perhaps, they begin to declare the person of Jesus as a standalone Lord and Savior. Came from heaven to earth, is the Son of God, lived a perfect life, laid down his life under the judgment of God to pay for the sins of every one of us. And if you put your faith and trust in him, you can be saved of the consequences of your sin. And more than that, he said he came that you might know abundant life. That is life with a purpose, life with a hope, life with a peace, life that you've never even imagined before. And, And that's the good news. Whether you know anything about Abraham or not, that's the good news. See, though most of these people probably had never heard the name of Abraham, never heard the name of Moses, they bowed their knees and they opened their hearts to the name Jesus, particularly Lord Jesus. And to the city of of Antioch, a major city in the world, the gospel was preached under the sovereign timing of God, and many turned to the Lord. It was a most strategic message. It was directed to mankind generally, and it led to a most strategic breakthrough in the plan of God for all mankind. Eventually, it would make its way to the lost souls in our land. Eventually, back in the day, they didn't even know this land existed. They didn't even know that there were people living here. They had no idea that there would come even from the land of Europe that they only vaguely were aware of into this country. And and somehow that, that marvelous message of good news in Jesus Christ would even come down through the years to you and to me. This was God's doing. We're looking at at the event that broke open the possibility of the whole world eventually receiving the good news. It's the message that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and that he can bring forgiveness and hope to all who will bow before him and give their lives to him. What a message! What a message. And it had nothing to do then with keeping, keeping up religious practices, bringing sacrifices to a temple, carving up your body in a way that would indicate you're different from all other people. It had nothing to do with any of that. It only had to do with what the Son of God come to earth did when he died on the cross and when he rose from the grave 
demonstrating that he is in fact Lord over all. And they would say, and you, you yield to him. We speak for him. His Holy Spirit is here supporting what we say and making, make, stirring your heart. And they could say, if your heart is being stirred, you know it. And if your heart is being stirred, it's because the very Spirit of God is doing that work because you in and of yourself would never be stirred by these things. You would just blow them off. But if they're being stirred... It's because God in his grace and God in his glory is chosen to involve you, of all people, in the process. And he's opening your eyes to truth. And of course, you don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to become anything but a believer in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it says a great number believed all of that, accepted all of that. What a beginning. In one of the largest secular pagan cities of the world, followers of Jesus Christ had formed a large and notable fellowship. The church was taking root. Now we read in verse 22 these potentially ominous words. And here they are. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. 350 miles. You'd think whatever happened in Antioch would stay in Antioch. But word trickled down, maybe through traders, maybe through people who just traveled those, those routes occasionally. Maybe somebody made a purposeful trip. Maybe some Jewish person in Antioch made a purposeful trip down to Jerusalem to say, you'll never b- believe what's happening in Antioch. However, it got there. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. When you just read that all by yourself, I don't know if your mind works like mine, but here's how my mind worked. I said, is that like saying mother found out what I had done at school? (laughs) When your mother finds out, haven't you always felt as a kid that what you do at school ought to stay at school? (laughs) How dare your teachers send a note home? And if any teacher gave you a note to take home to your parent, you secretly and subtly and pretty much unanimously knew it wasn't going to say, Mark is my best student. (laughs) News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Now, keep in mind, some time had gone by. I mean, we read through Acts here and we think this is one day, the next day, the next day. It's possible six months, eight months, nine months had gone by. Uh, It takes a while to have a city. People, one by one, come to Jesus Christ, hear the message, share it with one another. And then until gradually there's a, a group of them, a large group of them. It might take as much as a year to do that. But in time then, Word passed and got down to the people in Jerusalem. And because you see, there's nothing that Luke says happened in Antioch, anything like the day of Pentecost. No moment where 3,000 people got saved, got baptized, and a church is born in an hour. No, word was just spread. People came to Christ one by one by one until there's a, there's a sizable number. But eventually, word got to Jerusalem. 
to the people who were the head of the church. And now you've got this thing happening 350 miles away, and you're not even sure what's happening, really. Doesn't have a lot of Jewish oversight. Not even oversight of Jews who became believers in Christ. It's just a, a large thing going on up there, claiming the name of Jesus and, and preaching a good news gospel, and what are we to make of it? And so those church leaders in Jerusalem, probably Peter being one of them, chose a man. Somebody's got to go check this out. Who are we going to send? Will we send our toughest former Pharisee? The one who believes people ought to toe the line, make sure they know everything. They ought to know the Old Testament forwards and backwards before we allow them to be baptized. That kind of person? Who should we send? Well, it would be a most strategic choice. The whole enterprise might go up or down depending on who goes and who then reports back to Jerusalem if this is legit or not. Their choice definitely enabled the Savior's strategic plan to keep moving forward. And you know Christ, through his Holy Spirit, played a role, determined who would be sent. And Luke identifies for us that strategic man. His name is Barnabas. It says in verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. It would not bother me at all if on my headstone someday it were to say, here lies Mark Michaels, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That's what Luke said about Barnabas. If we knew nothing else about him, we would say, what a wonderful choice. He was a good man. That is, he had no ulterior motives. He had no selfish aspirations. He was uncorruptible. He was admirable. He was a good man, and everything that that communicates to you, he was. He was full of the Holy Spirit. That means, to use Paul's later language, he was walking in step with, he was controlled by, and thus he was most useful to the Spirit of God himself. And he was full of faith. No doubting, no second-guessing, trusting entirely in the work of God and in the fact that the Spirit of God was carrying him on day by day in the calling he was given. A good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. That's what we would know about him if we just read that one verse. But we know Luke had previously introduced us to Barnabas way back in chapter 4 of this book. Luke identifies him as one who had generously sold a piece of property that he owned and brought all the money and laid it at the Apostle Peter's feet that Peter and the other apostles might use it to meet the needs of the church. In that same chapter, chapter 4, Luke tells us that though this man's real name was Joseph, the apostles gave him the name Barnabas, almost like a nickname, which means a son of encouragement. Now, it's notable to me 
that Luke tells us when Barnabas got to Antioch and he saw the marvelous work that the Spirit was doing, Luke says, he encouraged them. He did exactly what he was known for. He did exactly what he was good at. He encouraged them. It's what he did best. Also in Luke chapter 9, we saw that Barnabas was the one who took the newly converted man Saul under his wing and brought him to the apostles when no one else would trust Saul at all. Saul was a persecutor. Saul was a murderer. Saul was against the things of Jesus. And yet Saul claims he's been converted, that Jesus spoke to him. Nobody would believe him and accept him and welcome him in to the Jerusalem church except Barnabas. He took Paul by the arm, by the shoulder. He brought him to the apostles and said, I believe him. He's legit. Jesus has spoken to him. Jesus has forgiven him. If Jesus has forgiven him, surely we can forgive him. He's one of us now. It was Barnabas who encouraged them to look at Saul as a true believer. Barnabas was an amazing man. And he, therefore, was indeed the perfect man to send to Antioch. It was a decision that was both strategic and tactical. The right man was sent at exactly the right time. And now, here's the heart of the encouragement Barnabas gave. Verse 23 says this. He said to them, he encouraged them by urging them or encouraging them to remain true to the Lord with all your hearts. Didn't necessarily say, set it upon yourself to get familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Get familiar with everything about it. He, he just got right to the main thing and he said, now you remain true. You've put your faith in Jesus Christ. You've acknowledged he is the savior of the world. You've acknowledged he's the Lord over the world. These are all brand new steps you've taken. These are brand new thoughts that you have. This is a brand new perspective you've adopted. Now, remain true to that. Don't make this a fling with Jesus. Remain true to the Lord with all your hearts. You see, the good news that brings deliverance from hopelessness and despair nevertheless can lead into challenging circumstances. He might have said, and, and it w might not be easy to remain true. You're excited about this new faith now, but, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil can and will rise up against all those who give their lives to Jesus. Barnabas knew that. Remain true. Remain true to the Lord with all your hearts. There was so much more that these newly converted Greeks needed to know. There were things they needed to know that Barnabas himself wasn't really equipped to teach them. I could believe that so much, so much of the, the things that might be going on could simply overwhelm him who by nature was a loving, kind, and gentle soul. And so right at this point, having told them to stay true, 
but knowing that staying true was going to require quite a battle. Staying true, they would have to learn some additional truths of God. Staying true, they would, they would have to learn the implications of committing to Christ. What does that mean about the, the pagan things around me? All these questions. Barnabas came to the place of saying this is for whatever reason, however he knew himself, he said this is more than I can handle. They sent me up here to see if this is legit. And by golly, this is just legit. I'm going to tell them Christ is being received here, honored here. The Holy Spirit is moving in their midst. And, and there's much work to be done here. And right then, the Lord led Barnabas to make what I'm calling today a strategic decision. Verse 25. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul knew the Old Testament scriptures forwards and backwards. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had devoted his whole life to understanding the workings of God in this world. From creation right on, he knew the truths of God. He knew the scriptures. He now said he had received from Jesus himself an understanding of the gospel. And so that's how all these things relate to what is happening now in the world and and. Saul knew the stuff that would eventually fill 13 books in the New Testament. As far as we know, Barnabas didn't write one. But Barnabas cheered on every word that was written by those who were chosen to write it. And he says, Saul is what we need here. This church needs a voice. This church needs a teacher. This church needs one who is so passionate about the risen Christ that that nothing could stop him. And so he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Jesus himself had said, we read it before, that Saul was my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. Well, here they were, a massive city full of Gentiles. It was time for Christ's instrument to start playing Christ's song. It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell how much time had elapsed since the day the believers in Jerusalem sent Saul back to Tarsus. But I have no doubt. Saul had spent every one of those days, every one of those hours, studiously perfecting the message, as I said, that would one day fill 13 books in the New Testament. There was no better man to let loose upon the hungry hearts that made up that fledgling church in Antioch. Saul needed to teach, and they were desperate to learn. Perfect timing. Well, that's how and when we end the story today. But as we do so, and thinking that we will finish this particular story next week before we head into an Advent season, our Christmas season, just be encouraged by this final thought. Because it's, it's still true today, just like it was way, way back then. Final thought, as head of the church... The Lord Jesus strategically anticipates and by his spirit initiates every step 
of its, that is the church's growth and development. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of this particular church. Jesus authorized, Jesus instigated, initiated by his Holy Spirit the birth of this particular church over 29 years ago. No doubt in my mind at all. He still guides us. He still directs us by his spirit. He still has things for us to do as we bring the gospel to the people of this community. As they come through our doors one by one. As God sends them. As many of you were sent sometime along the line. You showed up here having nobody invited you. Having read no no promotion that we sent out because we've never done it, but you came here. And you realize shortly after that, you were brought here by God himself, by the Holy Spirit. And you found a place to, to just celebrate the Lord Jesus, possibly for some of you to discover the Lord Jesus right here in our midst and then never want to leave. And just learned and grown because Jesus is guiding your life individually the same way he's guiding us collectively. And he's been doing that now for 2,000 years in this world. Heavenly Father, we pause to thank you on this Thanksgiving Sunday to thank you for the marvelous way you have enabled and entrusted your son Jesus with the whole salvation message in this world. To first off, provide it. To pay the price for it. To make the possibility that men and women could be forgiven of their sins and granted eternal life and the hope of heaven. Be given a gift of the Holy Spirit who guides them and directs them and, and keeps peace within them and sets them apart in this world in a, in a glorious way. And your son Jesus, through all the generations, for he is re he's forever having to start all over again with the next generation, that the faith would be carried on and carried on and carried on. And Father, we thank you for the work Jesus Christ has done in this generation, in our lives, in this very place, and in so many other places throughout the earth where the gospel is being told to the people of the earth. Father, bless this group right now. Let them know that they indeed are, are part of a great work that God is doing in the world, in the universe. Someday will be recognized throughout the entire universe and they will cherish it for all eternity. So Father, just bless them now. Let them see they're part of a chain, a long story. And that story is continuing. And Father, we pray that we might be sensitive to, submissive to, fruitful for the Lord Jesus Christ as we labor in his church and in this church. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast.
All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.